Welcome to the first season of Murder and 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder and 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Wilmington and Delaware is a small city with a population of around 70,000 and is located 30 minutes south of Philadelphia. Christopher Rivers, or Chris as he was called, had a privileged life growing up and attended private school. Over the years, Chris had many run-ins with the law, including in 2001 with the burglary and theft charge that was later pled down to criminal mischief and trespassing. His grandfather taught him how to work on cars, and in 2006, Chris partnered with mechanic Sean Terranova at CNS Auto, a repair shop in North Wilmington. Chris had a problem with drugs and alcohol and received two DUIs, and a few years later, Sean left the partnership due to Chris's substance abuse. Joseph Connell, or Joe as he was called, also grew up in Wilmington. He was from a prosperous family and was the middle child of three. He was a clean-cut kid with a bright future, but one night, that all changed. The news journal's report stated that Joe had been involved in a bar fight that spilled out into a parking lot. Apparently, Joe had been jumped and stabbed, so he grabbed a shotgun from his car. When a state trooper arrived, he pointed it at him. And when he was ordered to drop the weapon, he fled in his car with the shotgun. The trooper followed, pulled him over, and after struggle, he was arrested. He was charged with two counts of aggravated, menacing, and possession of a firearm during a felony, plus resisting arrest. Joe was offered a plea deal that involved a two-year sentence, but he turned it down, thinking he'd be exonerated at trial. But that didn't happen, and he was sentenced to six years behind bars. The report also revealed that Olga grew up in Russia. She was an intelligent woman with a degree in chemistry and physics. She always yearned to move to America and in 2006 was a mail-order bride and married an engineer in Delaware. They bought a condo together in 2009 at the Paladin Club. Their marriage didn't last long and when they amicably divorced in 2010, Olga stayed in the condo. Later that year, Joe was released from prison and he and Olga met on an online dating service. Joe saw her photo and sent her a message that said, I have never seen anybody more beautiful than you. But before their first date, Joe told her about his criminal past, and Olga was stunned. Her father was a police detective in Russia. What would he think? Olga went on the date, and the two quickly fell in love. Meanwhile, Joe had gone to work for Chris at CNS Auto, Then Olga joined the auto shop as a receptionist, and eventually Joe moved in with her in her condo. Chris wasn't great with money or paying bills, much of this due to his drug habit. He had two civil judgments against him, $15,000 for back rent and $115,000 to a supplier. He also had a $28,000 judgment from a credit union for a boat that he'd bought. In all, he owed $158,000. Plus, he'd also borrowed between $250,000 and $300,000 from his father and grandmother. But Joe didn't know about Chris's debts and bought into the auto shop for $20,000 and became a partner. 
In late 2012, they moved the business to a new property that included a state-of-the-art shop with four bays. They financed the purchase with a million-dollar mortgage, and in order to get it, the bank insisted on Chris and Joe purchasing identical key person life insurance policies, with each other listed as a beneficiary. If one of them died, the mortgage would be paid off first, then any remaining money would be paid to the beneficiary. The shop was doing well, and Joe was spending money fast. His sister Kelly told the news journal that it seemed like her brother was making up for lost time. He bought himself a pickup truck and a motorcycle, and he bought all good jewelry and a $75,000 baby blue Mercedes convertible. They traveled to New York and Florida and spent $4,000 on matching watches. Olga did find out about Joe's steroid use and wasn't happy about it, but she didn't consider it a hard drug. Chris was spending money as well. Joshua Bay, or Josh as he was called, supplied Chris with drugs. Chris was said to use cocaine, meth, and painkillers. Josh visited the shop, sometimes delivering the goods, other times to get work done on his white Cadillac. Josh had a criminal past, but he was also an FBI informant. In 2012, he told police that he knew two hitmen who charged $10,000 for a hired killing. Their names were Dominique Benson and Aaron Thompson. The News Journal reported that Harry Cook, who worked part-time for Chris at the auto shop, also supplied him with drugs and had loaned Chris $140,000. Later, when it was apparent he wasn't going to be able to pay it back, Chris verbally agreed that Harry would receive a portion of the shop, but it isn't clear if Joe knew about that deal. Joe and Olga got engaged, and Joe's mother gave him a family wedding ring for Olga. It had originally been given to his sister Kelly when she got married, but when she got divorced, the ring went back to her family. Kelly was not happy when she learned it was going to be given to her brother's bride. She had plans to remarry herself at some point. Joe and Olga traveled to the Caribbean island of St. John and got married on June 7, 2013. Court records indicated that while Joe and Olga were on their honeymoon, Kelly confronted her brother via text, and that's when she found out that he'd made the ring into a new one for Olga. Kelly was furious and stopped talking to Joe. The two business partners continued to drain the company bank account to supply their drug addictions and a lavish lifestyle. Between the two of them, they'd used their ATM cards to withdraw 25000 in 10 months. That summer, they started bouncing checks to their suppliers and owed one of them $25,000 for parts. Each week, Josh supplied Chris with Percocet pills and cocaine, costing thousands. After the wedding, Chris complained to Josh that Joe was showing up late for work and leaving early and draining the company with his spending and said he wanted the couple murdered. Josh reached out to someone he knew would do a murder for hire, Dominique Benson, 23-year-old with a history of drug and gun convictions going back to his teens. Dominique said he'd do it, but wanted help from Aaron Thompson. Josh told him the murder would pay $20,000. One night, Josh and Dominique met Chris at the shop where he confirmed he'd pay $60,000 for the two murders. Later, Dominique confronted Josh about the $40,000 discrepancy telling him he was holding out. Josh admitted it and agreed to split the additional 40000 with him. Chris provided them with Joe and Olga's address. He knew about the family feud between Joe and his sister Kelly and suggested burglarizing their condo before the murders. So on July 30th, Josh and an accomplice broke in. 
They pried the front door open and stole items including laptops and jewelry for $21,000. They were very careful and left no evidence behind. Later, when Joe thought his sister was involved with a burglary, it made Chris happy. Court records indicated that throughout the summer, Josh continued working on the murder-for-hire plan. He talked to another friend, Willis Rollins, about it, but it didn't go ahead because too many people were hanging around the condo. Another time, Aaron didn't have a vehicle, so Chris lent him his truck, but he didn't use it because it had OnStar and could be tracked. In September, the shop bounced another payment, this time for the mortgage. Chris complained again to Josh that Joe was running their business in the ground. He also stated that he hated Olga and would pay anything to get the two of them out of his way. He wanted Olga gone too, so she wouldn't get any of the insurance proceeds. Chris told Josh that his dad had given him $25,000 to pay for parts and that he'd use that money to pay him instead. He also promised Josh $2,000 a month for life after the murders. On Saturday, September 21st, it was 80 degrees, a relatively warm temperature for the last day of summer. It was August 39th birthday, and she and Joe planned to celebrate it with friends at a local restaurant along Wilmington's riverfront and headed out around 7.30 p.m. Meanwhile, Aaron had bought a burner phone. He activated it. Afterwards, he planned to turn it off for good. Throughout the day, Chris, Josh, Dominique, and Aaron exchanged a flurry of texts. Chris had planned to attend the dinner as well, and had been texting back and forth with Joe, so he knew when they'd be leaving their condo and took a screenshot of their text and sent it to Josh, who passed the information on to Dominique, who then went to the condo, but he was too late. Joe and Olga were joined by a few other couples. They dined, drank, and danced the night away. Chris was late, as he often was, and around 8 p.m. exchanged texts with Joe. Then Chris relayed the details to Josh, who then contacted Dominique, who then contacted Aaron. At 10 p.m., Josh went to his job for a shift at Cole's department store. He kept his phone on and continued communicating. Just after 10.41 p.m., Chris texted Joe that he was on his way and asked where they were sitting. Then at 11.15 p.m., Chris texted Joe again to say he had to go home and get his license. Fourteen minutes later, at 11.29 p.m., calls and texts were again flying between Josh, Dominique, and Aaron. Court records revealed that 11.34 p.m., Chris texted Joe to ask, You guys aren't leaving, right? Should I come back down, or is it a waste of time? Four minutes later, Joe texted back that he and Olga would be another hour. Five minutes later, Chris texted Josh, who then immediately called Dominique, who then called Aaron. The domino effect was in motion. The foursome's last communication was at 12.05 a.m. on Sunday. For the next two hours and nine minutes, there was phone silence. Around 12.30 a.m., the party wound down, and as the guests were leaving, Joe and Olga hugged and kissed each one. The couple were the last to leave and headed home. The evening was still warm and the winds light as they approached the front door of their condo. Olga had gathered their mail and just put her keys in the door. When shots rang out, neighbors heard loud voices. Bullets hit the front door and shattered the glass. The gunman was only a few feet from Olga when he pulled the trigger. She was hit with three bullets, one in the cheek, one to her shoulder, and one on the back of her head. Her body landed on the sidewalk, blood seeped from her head, forming a red pool on the cement. 
The mail was scattered on the ground around her body. Her purse and cell phone lay near. Her face was unrecognizable. She was still alive, but barely. Four bullets ripped into Joe's neck. The bullets exited through his skull, cheek, mouth, and neck. His body dropped face down into the shrubs to the left of the door. His head was bleeding. He still had his wallet and was clutching his cell phone in his right hand. He was dead at the scene. Court records indicated that at 1.28 a.m., police responded to a 911 call of shots fired and a female bleeding. At the scene were at least 14 rounds of ammunition, some from a 9mm, others from a 22 caliber. Olga was rushed to the hospital, but died soon after from her injuries. Detective James Leonard from the Newcastle County Police Department was assigned as Chief Investigating Officer. Throughout all the gunshots and violence, Chris was at home where he'd been since 10.30pm the night before, a home he shared with his girlfriend Lauren and their young son. On his way home, he picked up a burger and fries for her. Chris was awake most of the night and finally went to bed at 4.47am. When Josh got off work, he tried calling Chris, but he turned his cell phone off, so he called Dominique, who then called Aaron, but he wasn't answering his phone either. On Josh's drive home, he drove by CNS Auto and saw police. Meanwhile, a police officer on the scene recognized Joe and Olga from the burglary investigation a couple months earlier and knew that Joe owned CNS Auto and that Olga worked there as well. Detectives went to Joe's mother's house to break the news, and she told them about his partner, Chris. At 6 a.m., police, including Detective Leonard, visited Chris at his home. When he answered the door, they asked if he was Joe's business partner. Court records indicated that he replied with, What did he do now? Police were curious and asked what he meant by that, and he offered out that Joe was involved with steroids. Police then asked him if he'd go down to headquarters and be interviewed, and he agreed. There, he told them about Joe's fight with his sister Kelly over Olga's wedding ring, and he told them that not only was Joe using steroids, but he was also selling them. Police asked Chris for his cell phone so they could analyze it, and he handed it over. Police spoke with Kelly and confirmed that she was angry with Joe over the ring and that they hadn't spoken in months, and at the time of the murders, she'd been recovering from breast cancer treatment. Police also checked on Olga's ex-husband, but he was in Australia at the time of the murders. At 8 a.m., Dominique called Josh to say it was official, time to collect the money. But when Josh contacted Chris later that day, he told them police seized the $25,000 he was going to use to pay him. But he lied. The police hadn't seized any money. But he told Josh not to worry that he'd borrow money and sell his truck and tools to get it. Police executed search warrants at CNS Auto and Chris's house, at the shop, Chris took him to the spot where Joe had his stash of steroids in the ceiling. Police seized the drugs, and with Joe dead, they charged Chris. Then at Chris's, they collected the home surveillance video. In court, a detective testified that the video that night showed Chris arriving home with a bag from McDonald's, and that he looked directly at the camera and flashed a big smile. Later that day, the medical examiner performed an autopsy on Joe, in addition to the four bullets to his neck, he'd also been shot in the head, knee, and upper chest. Olga's autopsy was completed the next day. Both had died from gunshots. The news journal reported that four days after the murder, 
Chris posted a photo of him with Joe and Olga on Facebook and wrote, Sadly, we lost Joe and Olga early Sunday morning, tragically. Joe was my partner, but more importantly, one of my best friends. And Olga was an important part of CNS Automotive. He then asked for privacy during this devastating time, but also mentioned the shop was still open for business. Detective Leonard obtained the credit history of Joe, Olga, and Chris, and discovered three civil judgments against Chris. And when police searched Joe and Olga's condo, they discovered the $977,500 life insurance policy. Joe's sister Kelly recalled Chris's odd behavior at his funeral and told the news journal that he was crying uncontrollably, so much so that it got her attention. Then when he hugged her, he was trembling. She found it uncomfortable and weird, and her instincts told her that he had something to do with their deaths. Over time, Chris eventually paid Josh a little of the $60,000 he owed. First it was $5,000, then $2,500, and then another $1,500. Josh gave the money to Dominique and Aaron, but at one point, Aaron, frustrated at not being paid, threatened Chris by inferring that his girlfriend and son might be kidnapped. Police delved into Chris's cell phone records, which led them to Josh, whom they interviewed. At first he claimed he didn't know Chris, but eventually told police he worked on his car. So then police asked him why his mechanic would be calling him late on the night of the murders. Josh claimed he must have pocket-dialed him. When police pointed out that there were incoming calls from Chris, as well as outgoing calls, Josh still stuck to his story about car repairs. Police detectives weren't giving up on the phone records, and they obtained Joe's records as well. And although Chris had deleted his text from that night, his text to Joe remained on Joe's phone. Police again interviewed Josh on October 24th. This time, he admitted he was selling Chris drugs, and that's why there were so many calls on that night. The next day, police arrested Josh for providing a false statement. Now remember Chris's girlfriend, Lauren? It turns out she moved out the day of the murders and took their young son with her. She was fed up with Chris's drug use. He'd become paranoid and wasn't able to run the shop. In June 2014, she contacted police to tell them that Chris had contacted her and said he was responsible for what happened to Joe and Olga and that he was going to turn himself in. But Chris did not turn himself in to police. Josh's cell phone records led police to Dominique and those records led them to Aaron. And on September 3rd, both Chris and Josh were arrested on two counts of first-degree murder. They also faced charges for possession of a firearm during the commission of a felony, criminal solicitation, and conspiracy. Both were held in jail without bail. Two days later, Dominique was arrested and charged with the exact same counts. In December, behind closed doors in a locked courtroom, Josh pled guilty to murder. The prosecutor said he would be sentenced at a later date and stressed that he still faced life behind bars. In August 2015, Josh's trial began from providing a false statement to police, and Detective Leonard interviewed him for a third time. And he changed his story again. This time, he admitted to being hired by Chris to murder Joe and Olga, and that he was the middleman. He also testified to selling Chris Percocet and cocaine. Chris had filed a motion with the courts to sever defendants, but the Superior Court denied his request. A few months later, he filed another motion, 
this time for a transfer of venue, and again the Supreme Court denied him. In February 2016, two and a half years after the murders, Aaron was charged with two counts of first-degree murder, two counts of possession of a firearm during the commission of a felony, and first-degree conspiracy. In mid-April, the trial for Chris and Dominique started. Over weeks, many witnesses testified for the prosecution. The defense argued that there was no physical evidence, no fingerprints, no DNA linking Chris and Josh to the murders. But Chris was found guilty on all charges. However, the jury couldn't agree on Dominique. They found him guilty of first-degree conspiracy, but the jury was hung on the remaining charges, and prosecutors vowed to retry him. On October 7th, the Superior Court sentenced Chris to two natural life sentences plus 50 years. Chris appealed his sentence, but the Delaware Supreme Court ruled his conviction would stand. The month before, Josh had been quietly sentenced to five years in prison, with the condition that he could serve a longer term if he failed to testify in the future. The next year, on June 29, 2017, Aaron was found guilty on all charges and sentenced to two life sentences, plus an extra 45 years. Aaron also appealed his conviction, but the Supreme Court rejected his appeal. In September that year, Dominique's retrial began, and again he was found not guilty. He was sentenced to five years for the guilty verdict from the conspiracy charge from his first trial. Olga's dream of living in America ended in tragedy. A dream gone far too soon. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of 18-year-old Angie Dodge, who was brutally murdered in 1996. Her mother fought tirelessly to find her murderer, and almost 23 years later, with the help of C.C. Moore and Parabon Nanolabs, they found him. Brian Drip was a tiny little leaf in his family tree, but that leaf fluttered to the ground and was stomped on by justice. If you're dying to hear more, Past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>